0: Schools and gals, welcome to Mania, a place where history's most mystifying nightmares resurrect in stories. For today, our narrative takes us away from past episodes, away from the grit of Victorian London murderers and the dark diseases of the Middle Ages. On this holiday, we'll be transitioning to something a little less tangible. That's right, while you were drinking through your family reunions and opening up presents, Old Quinn here was slaving away at keeping you entertained. Banshees. I've loved this concept from the first moment I heard it. They are the antithesis of the quiet, watchful ghost. Instead, they are the presence which announces itself by issuing a scream of unforgettable volume. Not to frighten or startle anyone, rather to alert someone that their end is nearing. And it's strange, isn't it? The origins aren't particularly clear, but there are some crumbs I've collected to piece together something of a cohesive trail. In Ireland and parts of Scotland, a traditional part of mourning is the, quote, keening woman, somebody who laments over the passing of soldiers or warriors with their songs. This extends all the way back to the 8th century. Even then, their profession was quite the valuable service. Oftentimes, they would be paid in the form of alcohol, but not everyone found this acceptable. This kind of bartering was condemned by the Catholic Church, so, as punishment, the singers were cursed to become banshees seems pretty fair to me. The peculiar nature of the entity doesn't stop there. Banshees are thought to be a kind of fairy. Coming from the root word fae, fairy is a creature of European folklore. Fairies don't have a single origin, nor are they a single kind of entity, but are rather a collection of various folk beliefs. Some theories suggest that they are demoted angels or demons, while others say they are the spirits of the dead. But believe it or not, It wasn't necessarily a punishment to have a spirit wailing about your soon-to-be-deceased relative. There were, in fact, five prominent families in Northern Ireland, all claiming that they had a specific banshee which served only them. After all, it would be quite useful to know when a member of your family, or even you, yourself, were soon to meet your end. It all depends on perspective, doesn't it? Would you be terrified to be alerted to your coming end? Glad to be able to prepare for it. Or would you panic, realizing that you'd left so many untidied threads? On February 21st, 1437, King James of Scotland was approached by a woman. The stranger, surprisingly young and with a strange glint in her eyes, had gripped the monarch by the arm, much to the alarm of the relaxed guardsmen escorting him through Perth, a city in central Scotland. When the guardsmen tried to push her back, King James waved off their attempts. Perhaps because she was beautiful, or oddly confident. Perhaps it was because, just a year earlier, King James had failed a siege on the Ruxburg Castle. It was a humiliating event, and one that was making many powerful forces question his reign. His confidence, as both a ruler and an individual, was too low to support the bravado you might expect of a king. Whatever it was, James was said to be drawn to the stranger, like a sailor charmed by a siren. The woman beckoned him to lean closer, and that he did. Her features appeared distorted beneath her hood, like looking through a dense mask of fog. It is noted that their interaction was brief, that King James said little to nothing. Some recounts say that he mumbled a reply too low for anybody else to hear, while others suggest that he simply listened, and, when she was finished whispering to him, he pulled away with a nervous chuckle. The color in his lips had vanished. His demeanor changed, as if a great weight had been tied to his shoulders. Further along the street, one of the guardsmen asked, What did she say, my lord? King James stopped walking. His gaze was transfixed upon the ground, and when he met the guards' eyes, he replied, It was just some poor woman, peddling fortunes. And though his voice was not shaken, James was unusually quiet the rest of the day. That very night, King James I was assassinated. Now, the guardsmen were quite sure what the woman's business was, she wasn't a fortune teller. She was a seer. But as the story would get told again and again, people would come to realize that the seer wasn't merely a mortal with a knack for foretelling death. That would make her, in fact, something different. A banshee. Quiet, young, and beautiful. But a banshee, nonetheless. Oh, well, that was, uh... That was a treat. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back with more next month. Oh, and Happy New Year. <laughs> Did you really think that was it? Do you think that we were done there? No. No. Oh. oh, my friends, we have so much more to explore. Our second story takes us to the rolling pastoral hills, which meet the cold, stony coasts of County Cork, Ireland. The gloomy skies of December drench the lush, tangled grass fields, and, just a little ways away from the coast, a market town, Boutevant, rests, with candlelit windows and soft exhalations from small chimneys. The year is 1770, and the night is December 23rd, and while the townspeople busy themselves with holiday meals and prepare gifts for one another, a subtle but growing entity emerges. It stirred from the center of the town manifesting itself beside a well. A silhouette enveloped itself in shadows. The rain hammered against it and passed straight through. A low rain drizzled against a doll, tied to the handle of the bucket resting on the well's cover. Her faded features reflected a hollow sadness born of a tragedy which occurred many, many years ago. The faded dye of the doll's clothing, its missing arm, the loose stitches causing her smile to look broken, while the beads of her eyes had long since been pecked out by bored ravens. And as it swayed listlessly in the wind, the visage of a frowning, watchful face could be seen taking shape beside her, one which, as soon as it emerged, began to drift along the streets of the town. Simultaneously, the town's reverend, Charles Bunworth, was falling ill Beloved by the other denizens, it was no small cause for concern when the cold pressed into something more serious, when it lasted not for several days, but several weeks. The one looking after him was his daughter, Morgan. She tended to his fever, brought him fresh water, helped wash him, and was said to be by his side so dutifully that she often fell asleep on his bedside. At around 11 p.m. that night, the Reverend called for his daughter. He requested medicine, something to ease the intense pain in his lungs that fired up whenever he coughed. Morgan nodded hastily and sent for the town's undertaker, Thomas, who was close to the Reverend. Now, Thomas rushed to the apothecary, who lived on the opposite side of town. Shortly after, he returned with the medicine, but Morgan couldn't feel relieved. Not only was the Reverend's condition worsening, now Thomas looked close to the grave himself. There had been some commotion outside, glass shattering and a scream, but Morgan brushed it off as a gust of wind startling somebody. When he arrived, Thomas's skin was not just white, but green. As if he was close to, well, it didn't take long. Thomas grasped for the pail beside the reverend's bedside and vomited. Morgan grasped the undertaker and, not wanting to cause the feverish reverend any more concern, pulled him into the hallway. She shut the door behind them firmly. Not you too, she said, forcing away tears. No, no, it's not a disease, Thomas replied. What is it then? The words were caught in Thomas's mouth. He lowered his head, then fell silent. Thomas, Morgan pressed. Thomas wiped a little residue from the corners of his mouth and backed away from her. I, I shouldn't say, he said. "'Thomas, what is it?' "'Torn between the truth and silence, the undertaker broke down. "'He constrained his tears into a silent sobbing that soon subsided once Morgan had brought him a cup of water. "'Then th- th- there, w- there was this wind, this sudden gust. "'Then it wasn't raining anymore. "'The rain had turned to hail, and th- the wind is something much harsher. Then, "'Then we all saw it.' "'Saw what, Thomas?' Morgan pushed, after he'd fallen silent again. The low glow of of her eyes, Morgan. Thomas shook his head and wiped away the cold sweat on his lip, her her hair, that empty stare, the way her mouth just hung open, how her scream tore at the wind, her naked skin pale as the grave and barely clothed by rags. "I, I, "'I don't understand,' Morgan replied. A banshee has come for the reverend, Thomas said. She's here. It's it's not just me, Morgan. They all saw her. Her scream cracked Patricia's window. After that night, activity died down for a whole week. Relatives had come to look after Reverend so that Morgan could rest. An elderly grandmother of the town was posted one early evening on his bedside. Throughout the rest of the house, a gathering of workers and relatives had come to show their support. Christmas had passed, and the year was coming to a close. And sometime that evening, a rose bush near the Reverend's bedroom window began to scrape against the glass. But the air was completely still, both inside and outside the home. Snow fell in quiet, gentle sways, almost entirely absent of wind. Then there was a sound in the hallway, something like shears cutting hay, or the scraping of heavy feet against wooden floor. When the elderly woman went to check, there was, in fact, nobody in the hallway. A few of the guests rose from their seats by the fireplace in the living room. They were drawn closer towards the room. Drawn by a dark curiosity. The kind that pulls you closer to roadkill that you know you don't want to see. The kind that pushes you to ask the details of a tragedy you'd be better off not knowing. And it was precisely then that the silence broke. Shattered by a piercing cry, it vibrated throughout the home, erupting first through the reverend's window, then through Morgan's upstairs. And by then, every window and piece of glass in the household had splintered, covering the entire abode in thousands of glittering shards. As the guests keeled over, one by one dropping, clutching their bloodied ears, Morgan stirred from her bed. The sound lashed at her. The scream seemed to fold over itself, doubling, tripling in volume. Its agonizing screech seemed to dig into her ears and pull back her eyelids. She stumbled through the house. Pictures hung along the staircase fell off from the violent tremors which had taken hold of the house's foundation. The banisters themselves shook, daring to uproot themselves from the woodwork. At last, Morgan made it to the Reverend's room. Through the living room and hallway, dozens of the guests were scattered about, utterly incapacitated. The initial echoings of the cry had obliterated their senses. While several of them were moaning, most were simply unconscious. A look of helplessness captured perfectly on their expressions. Blood covered the floor, dripping out of their orifices. And standing beside the reverend's bed was a stunning woman, barely clothed in rags. She reached out to the reverend, a cadaverous hand which caressed his face, and when the banshee turned to look at Morgan, her scream had ceased, and the placid grin on her face suggested that she was the sweetest mute you'd ever have met. Then the thrashing throughout the house, too, ceased. A final ornament, which had survived the initial shocks, fell and broke. Morgan turned her head towards the noise reflexively. And when she looked back, the banshee had vanished. Bloodied footprints led outside the bedroom's window into the garden. They trailed past the broken rosebush, beyond the fractured glass, and into the placid countryside shrouded with a blanket of snow. Into that quiet night, where no more bloodied footsteps were to be found, and no trace of the banshee remained save for a doll with missing eyes a broken smile and a faded dress morgan picked it up not having to wonder how it was removed from the well in the center of town and she wondered too whether or not to bury it with reverend when he would be lowered into the grave the following day Truly, it's difficult to discuss the truth behind the fiction. I mean, how do you parcel out ghosts, the whole grimoire of phantoms and spectral beings in history? But, as I said before, I do think there are more complex truths behind the archetypes. However, with this particular story, all of the history that I offered from the beginning was a very candid collection of what I found. So. Whether or not the stories themselves are true is really up for you to decide. The details and the origins, that's all fact. The metaphors and what to take away from the story, again, is dependent on your perception alone. With the Bunworth Banshee, particularly the Banshee that haunted the Reverend, that story, most of its details were left unmarred. What I did exaggerate was the moment where she appeared. However, the detail about Thomas, the undertaker, who didn't have a name from the research, that was what. that was really the end of what I could collect. And the rest, the appearance, the broken glass, the blood, and how it affected all the people in the home, that was all fabricated. I thought that it deserved something more than just something unsettling. In the stories, people hear Banshees scream and they're there for a brief moment, and then they disappear. And of course, the person they were haunting dies. But it just doesn't seem enough. I mean, if you're going to have a story where every single person sees a ghost and hears its scream, it seems a little lackluster for the scream to just be heard. I wanted it to be painful. I wanted it to be a real resonance, and so... That's what it was, but I think with this story in particular, what the Banshee is to me beyond the research, beyond the folklore, it's a plea for attention. It's a plea saying, please be in the present. Please remember what you need to do now because all of it is going to be taken away and all too soon. What do we take away from these tales? From the archetypes of the Grim Reaper that appear in so many cultures? What do we take away from the appearance of a banshee? Something alerting us to the end of life? When I was researching this, it really did dawn on me that the banshee is nothing more than another archetype for the Grim Reaper. Another archetype for a messenger of death. But maybe is a darker more complex truth in that the messenger comes with an opportunity not so much for the damned or the dead but for the living indeed if we were to die and feel the panic of regret for having not what we set out to do for having failed ourselves and maybe our loved ones for having not fulfilled our dreams or at least several major opportunities we wished pursued. Wouldn't our soul be making that sort of cry, that loud screech, this hopeless, horrific sound of just an end we don't want to meet? That's what I think a banshee represents. When I was writing this story, I wanted to give them a chance to be beautiful as well. In my mind, there is a duality to death. There's something horrible about the fact that every moment is constantly slipping from our hands, but something beautiful about it too. In fact, the context of it may be what is beautiful, and that life is precious because it is constantly slipping through our fingers, and that the end of our lives could be beautiful, a sort of angelic end to things, a surcease of the chaos, but if we feel as if we didn't set out what we wanted to do, as if we squandered all that time just given to us. Maybe a banshee is what we deserve to find in that moment. Maybe a banshee is what we've earned. A long, dying, horrific screech to usher us into the next passage, to mark that we've wasted all that time. But before we go, there are some skeletons to organize in our closet, and I promise to keep it brief. First off is the podcast's availability. I spent quite some time this month making Mania available across other platforms. Previously, it was only on iTunes and Stitcher, but now episodes are available on SoundCloud and YouTube as well. So if you know anyone who doesn't use iTunes, feel free to direct them there. Additionally, if you have any hosting sites you'd prefer to find me on, please feel free to get in touch and I'll jump right on that. Even if it's just for one extra listener, I'd love to accommodate for you. And lastly, is a bit of an awkward subject. It's the nature of Patreon and supporting this show. By the time this episode is live, or certainly within a day or so, my Patreon account will be live and active as well. Meaning, you'll be able to subscribe to demonstrate your support for the show if you so enjoy it. Otherwise, you can simply visit harlequingrim.com slash support. Currently... Mainly doesn't run any ads and has no sponsors. I'd really like to keep these stories uninterrupted by testimonies about how much I love Audible or Amazon, but that means that a supporter-based subscription is necessary. So thank you for your continued support and attention in advance. You really are what keeps this wacky machine stumbling along. And one final note. I have to thank the two artists contributing to this podcast. The first is Curious Fire. He does the introduction and the theme behind the speculation that follows the end of the narrative. He is a fantastic musician, a drummer, and he offers lessons on music production. Next is Vinswept. Yes, Winswept. Or Windswept uh, in English. He is a Swedish producer who makes these wonderful folkish medieval tunes that are inspired by fantasy games and stories alike. It's actually some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear, and he's one of the most gracious guys, very underplayed, and he deserves more attention. So if you can give that producer some love, it would mean a lot to me. So no more final notes. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join me again next time.